In this first instalment of Intrepid Hunter, we're catching up with Nathan Little, a Manchester suburban-born field sports enthusiast who, following the death of his father, was inspired to pursue his dreams of hunting in some of the world's most extreme locations. Today, we're talking about how he pulled off the trip of a lifetime hunting ibex in Kyrgyzstan. Over the years, I've come into, shoot, into shooting and field sports and I've gone, do you know what, I really love my pheasant shooting and we, I've gone through the phase of shooting all over the UK and shoot, shooting some lovely pheasant shoots and things like that. And then, you know, when COVID happened, everybody had to sort of be in small groups or on their own and things like that. And, and, and it sort of changes the dynamic of you still want to do the things that you love, but you're heavily restricted. So then I started having a look at other things. But just before then, it was, you know, this is something I've wanted to do for quite a couple of years now, because obviously at the start of COVID, everybody was locked in. I lost my dad completely out of the blue. And it just gave me that sort of wave of, you know, that over, overwhelming wave of, do you know what? Let's just go and do everything that I want to do. Meet some interesting people, you know, obviously once once we were able to get out a lot more. And then I thought, well, where else can I go? And pheasant shooting was getting, well, it is still getting so expensive these days and it makes it increasingly difficult for everybody. And I thought, well, I've got some amazing friends here, there and everywhere. Let's see what we can do. And let's just say it's become a bit of an addiction. <laughs> it's just, it's such a lovely story because was your father's death COVID related? No, it, it came right at the start of COVID. So we were still sort of the the sort of early on, onset of um, everybody being locked down uh, or it was about to be everybody was going to be lo- going to be locked down and then it just it happened like that so it was but then it's it spilt over because of the whole the whole funeral process and all the you know the, the number of people dying was getting more and more and then funerals you couldn't have funerals or you were heavily restricted so it just went on and on and on for weeks and weeks and weeks you know, you've got that rest. You're wrestling with that, dealing with all all of that uh, palaver, as no doubt. Well, obviously, thousands and thousands of other people were doing. But you know, this wasn't COVID related. It was just completely out of the blue. And then you just think, do you know what? You're stuck in for then for the foreseeable during lockdown. So you you couldn't spend time with anybody. Um, and it was during that period I thought, well, do you know what? Let's go and do X, Y, Z. I got into my salmon fishing then. And absolutely adore that because it was something that you you could do on your own or with a very small number of people. And then I thought, well, actually, let's do some more deer stalking. I was able to go out into the highlands and do more more deer stalking. And I actually thought, you know, it wasn't about what species are out there to, to, to hunt or shoot or stalk, or whatever. It was more about what people you get to meet, given that you'd, we'd all just spent two years pretty much locked up. Yeah, you know it's quite nice to meet different people and forget about that two years of what's just happened for everybody and actually start to meet meet new people meet make new experiences with people and learn things from them because there's some so many people out there that I've met even in this short sort of two years post-covid or whatever it is that I've, I've made great friends with and they've taught me some amazing stuff it's, I love it how did you get into hunting were you always into hunting were you brought up hunting I come from a totally non-hunting, non-shooting, non-fishing, totally working class family from, you know, sort of suburban Manchester. 
And it just so happened that my dad was invited by a friend of his who took him sort of rough shooting or clay, well, clay shooting, then rough shooting, then ferreting. This was before I was I was sort of born. And my dad sort of dabbled in that sort of in field sports. And I went on the, the first time I ever went was about I was about eight just because I wanted to go and uh, see what it was all about. And then from there and there, it just progressed. So I ended up, ended up doing a hell of a lot more than my dad did. To a point where he ended up stopping and got quite jealous of the amount of shooting and fishing he was doing. So, I mean, you mentioned your father's death as being kind of a key turning point for you. What do you think, you know, you could have had that moment to to think, right, I'm going to do this with my life, I'm going to do that with my life. What made you think, no, I'm, I'm going to embark on a series of crazy adventures around the world? What was kind of going through your mind at that time? I'd always sort of plotted and thought, you know, sort of, we all have dreams of we want to do this, we want to do that. And everyday life and gets in the way of these things. And that's what sort of seems to happen for most people. And it had for me for quite some time. And you just need, and it, I think, sadly, I just needed that sort of sad, sad event to sort of make you say, well, do you know what, go and just go and do these things as much as you physically can and ex- explore the things that my dad wanted to do that I can now do that he's obviously not not going to be able to do and without meaning to without trying to sound or wanting to sound sort of cliche do the things that he wanted to do for him really and for me at the same time because I think we can all get so bogged down with work and day-to-day life and we get stuck in this sort of single track lane that actually we forget to do the things that really sort of give us a bit of a bit of excitement a bit of adrenaline rush and I've certainly had that in the last couple of years as well. It sounds like you've um, you've definitely had an adrenaline rush having looked through the the pictures from Kyrgyzstan and that hunt. I mean, it just looks breathtaking. But just winding it back again, when you were young, I mean, what was your first memory of hunting? Did you hunt with a rifle? Did you go out with a shotgun? What's your kind of the crisp memory that sticks with you of of hunting your first time? The first first memory, crystal clear, was the first rabbit I ever shot. The first thing I ever shot. I was petrified. It was with a little Webley and Scott bolt action force, and which probably most people have ever, ever, most people have shot in their life. It's sort of the sort of the entry, you know, the 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 entry standard where everybody seems to have to have, to have tried out. And I ran back to my dad, petrified that I'd shot this rabbit, which I was there to shoot, and didn't know what to do. And that was the that was the sort of first thing, and 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 the sort of the big softy in me was like well I don't I don't want to touch it I'm, you know and you have to learn these things of you know you got you've got to prepare that now and my dad was very much he wasn't a driven shooting kind of guy he was very much eat what you shoot go out and shooting for the pot because he enjoyed cooking so that was that was probably my first memory and then from then on it was my first ever days driven shooting at 13 which he bought for my 13th birthday which is in Wales then it was the first day that I ever went on on my own. First gun dog, which was a Springer Spaniel. And, you know, right the way up now to me doing what I'm doing now. So did you eat the rabbits? Yeah, I did. I can't, I'll be honest, absolutely honest. I cannot remember remember what my initial reaction was, but it obviously wasn't that bad because I'm still I'm still out shooting and eating what I shoot now. You know, I'd be I'd be lying if I told you it was it was delicious. It was amazing. Probably the brutal reality of it was probably pretty disgusting the way my dad used to cook. So, um... <laughs> well, you're going to have to share the uh, the recipe for for whatever dish I'll, you created. I'll I'll find I'll find I'll find a, 
I'll find a nicer recipe and suggest that for you instead. <laughs> that sounds good. So um, let's fast forward. So you've just come back from an incredible experience in Kyrgyzstan. We have to start at the beginning. Why Kyrgyzstan? Kyrgyzstan was not the first sort of place I was going, you know, on the list of places that I was going to go. It was something, it was an aspirational thing where, do you know what? Yeah, let's let's go and let's go out. Let's let's learn more about rifle shooting, because up until sort of two years ago, I'd, I'd done very, very little rifle shooting. And in comparison to most people, I still have done very little rifle shooting. But my whole purpose, my my whole reason for doing what I've done is to learn more about rifle shooting and also, you know, sort of diversify what shooting I know, which is mostly driven shooting up until now. I wasn't planning on that. I was actually planning on doing more deer stalking, which I've done and, you know, and did and, and love. But it was actually a friend of mine, Dimitri from Belgium, who has actually become sort of, let's say, a brother from another mother who I shoot and hunt with now a lot more than I uh, do most of the people. He blames me for, for booking a lot more of these trips than, you know, we've got a lot more booked in. Um, and I blame him. So it's a sort of we, we're yet to accept accountability for, for who's who's to blame. And he said to me, look, I'm really keen to do the Ibex. I've done all my research for it foolishly or foolishly naively or just sort of, you know, good on me for doing it. I just went, yeah, OK, put me in and placing the trust in him to to have researched and asked the questions that needed to be asked because being perfectly honest I'd never hunted abroad until, until that until that point well I had last year up until last year sorry but I've never hunted as far away as um Kyrgyzstan he absolutely pulled a blind it was it was the most incredible trip I've ever done well one of the most incredible trips I've ever done up to date we'd planned a year for it we kept phoning each other up pretty much on a daily basis have you started the gym yet have you started the gym yet <laughs> um I actually did more swimming in gym than he did, which, you know, he's a chef. So he had a bit more of a tough time of it than I did because of the nature of his job. And I always, I always say to him, I never, tr- I never trust, a th- a th- I'd never trust a thin chef. So he, he was, <laughs> he, he was always going to be, uh, you know, sort of losing against me on that one. But over the course of 12 months from last, last sort of, well, 2021, September 21, when we booked it right the way through to sort of October, uh, last year when we went we helped each other out we sort of researched the the uh the climates we you know the sort of kit that we needed uh we did some practice uh we you know with the shooter we on the shooting ranges and things like that and he sort of explained to me because he's infinitely more experienced than I am what I sort of needed and even though he was in Belgium we sort of made it work really really well and March last year we started looking at flights and everything like that and it was becoming more and more real at this point yeah, needless to say, that's where that's where it sort of all sort of went from there, really. So how so did you fly direct into um, which airport did you go into in Kyrgyzstan? Um I flew to we flew to Bishkek, which is the capital. So you I flew from Manchester, then transferred uh, transferred to in Istanbul and then flew on to uh, Bishkek. So it was sort of I think I can't remember how many hours and 11 hours, something like that in total, maybe a bit longer. And actually, that was my first ever time traveling with a gun whilst hunted abroad before, sort of the Norway and Germany the year before. Kyrgyzstan was actually the first time I'd traveled with a rifle. So I was totally green and being perfectly honest, absolutely petrified about traveling with a gun because you hear all these horror stories of people having things in their pockets and then get security sort of ascending on them, you know, um, things going wrong in foreign countries where you know 
it's hard, the, the, the language barrier. So I was sort of really sort of cautious and, and really, really nervous from the moment of leaving the house on the morning that we, um, that we were due to go. But thankfully, the agent that we'd gone through, who's a private agent in um, Kyrgyzstan, was phenomenal. So the reality of it is, is I didn't need to worry because we'd gone through a really good agent and all the paperwork was was meticulous. But when I got to the airport the first first day on the 19th of October, which was the day we flew out, I approached the counter and the two girls that um, helped me with the air, from the airline, because I flew with Pegasus and nobody I knew had really flown with Pegasus. So I'm thinking, oh God, I've gone with a, with a, a duff airline. Um, they looked petrified. Turns out it was their first week on the job and nobody had ever been, been to them with a gun. So I'm, I, I approached the counter to say, hi, I've got a gun. <laughs> 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 you know, probably should have worded it slightly different. Anyway, their staff came and helped, you know, the more, more senior staff. Um, security came and all it was a matter of was they, they, they supervised me, they checked the gun over, checked the serial numbers, made sure it corroborated with my license and invitation letter to hunt in Kyrgyzstan. And from there, they, they sort of march your kit. I didn't realise, I thought it goes on the um, conveyor belt, but they can't leave it to chance at anything. So then secure, another uh, border force come and take the gun or, through the through the security which was great because i didn't book fa um fast track and he just walked me straight the way through opened a private lane for me all these people are looking at me it was ace <laughs> um and i'm there you know looking like indiana jones well i think i look like indiana jones and i'm going through security and everyone's like you know who's this who's this and within sort of an hour i was sat Posted on Instagram, you know, drinking champagne. It was ace. Oh <laughs> it was Prosecco, actually. But nobody knows. Well, they do now. Yeah, wait, um, isn't it? It was all fizzy. And um, from there, everything everything was fine. A quick transfer in Istanbul. You know, you sort of race through the, tra the, the sort of the connecting flights and they stop you again. You think, I'm going to miss my flight. You know, that was probably a bit stressful. And obviously, first time traveling, I'm thinking, is are my guns going to get to the to the other end? And then next minute I get it, well, five hours later from Istanbul, I arrive in Bishkek and the agent greets me, all the guns are checked over, and the adventure properly begins then. I think that kind of is really reassuring for people who want to go and try hunting abroad because I think it's quite daunting if you, you know, traveling anyway post-COVID is stressful and the security queues and everything so the idea of traveling with a um a gun is kind of like probably the last on most people's list but I mean when you did the transfer um to the 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 flight from Turkey was your gun transported direct to your kind of final plane to the destination or did you have to collect it and walk it between your transfer no well that that was the good thing I mean and I think it's fairly standard practice, but they they transferred the gun. The guns went straight onto the next aircraft, so I didn't need to go and recheck any paperwork. It was just a, a quick. In my instance here, it was a case of checking through um, Turkish Turkish um, security again, uh, bags and all that lot. Which that was quick, quick in and out. And then uh, because the guns, they seem to frog marched them onto the next aircraft nobody you know nobody else other than security handled those guns so the because at the end of the day they don't want 
random guns sort of appearing in places where they shouldn't be. So that was that was really good. When it, when I arrived in Bishkek, they were taken off the aircraft again and brought brought food to me. So it was I was impressed by the whole operation. I know people have horror stories and and they happen. But in my instance, thankfully, my first ever experience traveling with a gun was really, really good. That's brilliant. What? Um, how many guns did you take? I, t- I took one. I had the new um, Merkel, which I've christened Ang- um, Angular Merkel. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Dimitri brought his, and everything was absolutely yeah. As I say everything was absolutely perfect, and we got there. We drank a lot of tea whilst we were waiting doing the paperwork. I mean, a lot of tea it was you know they sort of kept plying us with tea. And um, we then, um, yeah, roll on 10 hours of driving. Oh, my goodness me. Seriously. where? I mean, where were you? Did you know where you were going? Had you looked at a map of where you were going to end up? Or were you just kind of going with the flow? To be honest, I was just going with the, going with the flow. I thought, well, I'd been traveling for 11 hours. Um, I could do with sort of freshening up and everything like that. And being really crude, it was she, the agent was like, well, there's some wet wipes, there's a toilet. I was like, no, it's all right. I don't need a shower that bad. I said, are we going to a hotel? She goes, no, no, we're going to drive straight there. You know, she said it's going to be 10 hours. So the journey the journey there was was interesting in itself. What was the landscape like? I mean, 10 hours, you must have gone through everything. It was without doubt the most bizarre car journey I have ever made. Dimitri and I are sat in the back and for the first hour, certainly, we could do nothing but laugh at some of the sights that we'd seen. The country itself, landscape-wise, is absolutely stunning. It has, you can see in the distance, the most beautiful mountain ranges. You know, you've got huge sort of almost like prairie, you know, prairies and and and, and fields, you know, by the motorway. But then on top of that, you've got this hodgepodge of buildings and sort of shacks and shanties and shops in the most peculiar places and market stalls and places where they really just shouldn't be on top of cattle and cows running in the road and and uh, um in many cases across motorways you know stray dogs everywhere and you just think you know it is just worlds apart from where i've just come from but in this really strangely charming sense, if you just go, well, you know, everybody's quite happy doing what they're doing and going about doing everything. But it is just it is quite hilarious seeing some of the sights. And then and the, the best, funniest ones were, were sort of really cheap, dodgy fuel for like what would be equivalent of like 50p a litre here. And we asked our agent what that is. And she said, you really don't want to buy, put that in your car. You know, it's almost like alcohol. And it's not, you know, it's not good. It, it was just, it was crazy. And then on a motorway, we stopped at this sort of lay-by and it was just a massive vegetable stall. You could buy everything there oh. in the middle of a motorway. You know, it was it was just nuts, but it was, it had a really charming quirk about it. What was the, I mean, 10 hours travelling in anything is hard work. What was the vehicle like that you were travelling in? The vehicle was 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 ace. It was um I think we had um I think it was a Toyota Land Cruiser. Everybody seems to have either Land Cruisers there or Lexuses. Uh, they seem to be the most popular. It was really comfortable. Um, I mean, nothing's that comfortable for ten hours, but it was you know it, it you know certainly manageable. You know certainly for the first couple of hours, you know in between sort of sleeping and catching up on a bit of sleep that we couldn't do. You know we couldn't necessarily do on the plane or whatever. You know, you're sort of too fascinated by the landscape and things like that. 
we then pulled into a <laughs> a service station which looks really modern the food there was all sort of in a, in a nice counter sort of canteen style really nice food and we thought oh right great what you know could get wi-fi check everything because there's just no signal from anywhere in there from sort of uk uk service providers so if you're going to go over there either get a different phone or just be prepared to have very very limited intermittent service but but the reality of it is you go places like that not to have the service um phone service so we could check everything there food was great cheap very cheap but the funniest most bizarre thing was and i've got photos of it somewhere videos of dimitri coming back from the toilet looking mortified absolutely mortified at, at this most bizarre concept of a toilet which was just a hole in the ground where you could literally <laughs> i'm just trying to be really <laughs> delicate here but where where you could do your business but you could see the tops of other well you could see sort of the <laughs> eyes of other people as they may have may have may or may not have been doing their business and i mean thankfully i didn't need it that badly um <laughs> and it was sort of 10p to use it and I just paid the 10p just to go and have a look at this toilet because it was so <laughs> it, it had such a reaction from him and it got equally the same same reaction from me but it yeah nuts um and then we continued on on there picked up one of the guides who lived in the local village to the mountain range and I thought oh right we must be nearly there until the agent goes no no we've got three hours now in the mountains wow and when you hit out of the mountains um you you get to the sort of the the start of the national park and then you really do hit some of the most breathtaking scenery i think i've ever seen you're obviously higher up because you see a lot more snow on the tops of mountains and you you become more at snow level and it is just stunning um and you're going on some bloody dangerous roads and you think uh, and every, and the driver was on his mobile, no care, no care in the world whatsoever. It was just, it, it was, it was nuts. But you do go through these stunning places. You up into the mountains. You come through. We end up going through some sort of military border checks and things like that. And pretty soon, then it becomes pitch black, and you're in the pit, you're in the middle of the night, and you're thinking, "My God, you know, where have I brought myself?" And then sort of about, about seven o'clock at night, I think it was, we arrived at the uh, base camp. And, uh, you know, that was the, that was part one of the journey, well, part one of the adventure over, needless to say, the rest. That was more like the introduction. You know, it was about to sort of crank up a hell of a lot from, from then on. When you got to that kind of base camp one, what, um, what kind of altitude were you at then? We went up to... I think three thousand, three and a half, call it about three and a half thousand meters. Then we dropped down, and I think base camp for us was about two thousand eight hundred meters. Okay. Um, um, off, off, off the top of my head, yeah. We were you prepared for that? I mean, in terms of the kit that you'd taken, had you had to invest in special clothing or? Yeah, in the, in the run up to it, I tried quite a quite a lot of different kit. When you do things like that, I mean, I've got loads of kit at home, and you think, well, could I take that? Could I take that? And then you realise, actually, when you're in the temperatures that we were told to expect, you realise that the kit that you've got is not necessarily cut out for that. And what we found was, uh, well, I, I tried a few different bits out. I ended up with um, some of the Ventile stuff, which is the material is Ventile, which um, they used for, uh, is it Randolph Finds the Adventurer? 
and Edmund Hillary used it on um, Everest. So it's got some history to it. And Randolph Fiennes used it, used this material in the Antarctic. It's all natural. And Laxon, uh, the Danish company, produced some stuff. So they did, they've got a smock. I, I, I ended up getting a, a smock and the new pants for it, well, as well as some different fleeces and things like that, which were designed for more severe weather, cold, colder climbs, and something a little bit more hard-wearing, given that we're on rock most of the time. And I have to say, without without fear of contradiction it is the the best kit i've ever had it's phenomenal uh, we were in some temperatures which i'll come to in a bit which were just absolutely baltic conditions and you'd never know it was amazing no i didn't sweat it was important not to sweat um because of the temperatures particularly at night and yeah it was just absolutely bomb proof that's a really good testament to the kit because i guess when you get out there, it's not like you can go to the shop and replace well, anything. Well, exactly. When, when, when we were in base camp, we were three hours from the nearest village, and that's three hours by car. So, yeah, it it was it was quite quite a way. So you need to have confidence in 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 the kit that you've got. And I tried it before I went, loved it. Packed up a few other bits and pieces. I ended up taking from possum merino socks. <laughs> My God, they're brilliant. They're amazing. They're they're amazing. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely amazing. So, yeah, all kit was sort of pre-planned in advance because we were there for 10 days. Um, And medical, we took took plenty of different medications, um, the good old wet wipes, plenty of those were packed. And I was told, um, I ended up going going buying some joggers and people were recommending because because we were going to be riding horses quite a lot, quite extensively over the over the course of the next certainly the next few days. We I was told to buy some joggers because of saddle sore, and I'd never had saddle sore before. And I was assured by plenty of friends who ride that it's one of the most unpleasant things. And somebody suggested, well, I'm looking at them all and saying hundred quid there, like crikey, you know, it's, you know, whatever. But it, then somebody said to me, go to Decathlon and they've got some for seventeen quid. Well, I bought them, took a risk. They're they're amazing. So comfortable. <laughs> really, really comfortable. Uh, you know, a, a, extra extra cushion, let's just say. Um, not all the kit has to be super expensive. You just have to get the get kit that is made for made for a purpose. And you can find kit that's not necessarily it's not necessarily just a, a brand you're paying for, but if you've got the kit that's made from the right material and made well, you know, there, there is there is stuff out there. But I have to say, testament to Laxon, it's mega. You mentioned a second ago about the, um, you took out some medical kit with you. Um, did you have medical insurance? What was your kind of plan if, you know, someone fell off a horse and needed emergency evacuation or were you not really thinking about that? I'll be honest, the naivety of me on the first trip was not really thinking about it. Thankfully, my insurance with my with my bank, um, I had medical insurance um to an extent there it was foolish of me it was a bit of a silly move not to it was just a huge oversight but you're so excited about kit and everything else like that and you don't think the worst worst is going to happen which is a silly thing to do but it's an honest answer in the sense that it you know you look at it and go oh yeah I'll be, all, I'll be all right I had medical insurance with my bank yeah it was it was fair you know you it, medical insurance isn't that expensive 
I don't I don't think for, for even for trips like that. But it's worth it. It's, it's absolutely vitally important. And I now say that with absolute conviction, knowing now what I what I was about to experience the following day, following two days, three days, and so on and so forth. Um, so medical insurance is a must. Okay, so now now I'm really intrigued. What? <laughs> so you get there. It's seven o'clock at night. Do they feed you? Where are you sleeping? We actually had a really quite plush uh, accommodation. It was like a little cabin. The heating was uh, the sorry the heating was on, but the electricity was rationed. Bearing in mind we're so far away from everywhere, so you had a generator and it'd go off at certain times. But you know we had we had carpets, we had a flushing toilet, <laughs> we had cushioned toilet roll, <laughs> and uh, we had bedding on there which <laughs> i thought oh greg it looks mink it looks like mink no it wasn't it was just it was just that sort of really furry um <laughs> furry sort of material that when you learn you get huge static shocks <laughs> um but it was just nice to get into a bed we had uh, we had dinner that night and we had the most amazing little canteen and there was a lady who lived on site for, for hunting parties, who was just amazing, so lovely. The food was fantastic, but she she sort of helped us to sort of experiment with trying new things. Most people don't particularly, when it comes to food, don't particularly want to step out of their comfort zone if they're so far away from society and civilization and things like that. They'd like some sort of comfort. But it was just lovely. The food, we had stews, we had like sort of um, borscht, I think, which, which is like the Rus- Russian cabbage and beetroot, which was amazing. Uh, we'd have things like beef, beef stews and and a few and a, a variety of other dishes over the course of the trip. Breakfast was lovely. It, could, it was sort of like um, uh, omelettes and cooked meats and things like that. And again, a lot of tea. A lot of tea. So that was, the food was great. So we ate that night, went to bed and you're just absolutely knackered. So you just don't really care about anything else. You're there, everything's there, all your kit's there. Let's go hunting. The next morning was absolutely glorious. We went and zeroed the rifles. We met the guide. So we met the government official who was guiding, who was supervising the hunt. And then our two guides who were taking us out, who were were just Beck and Bismar. Um, And they were just fantastic um, and Cabal was our hunting um, supervisor who was just a legend so we zeroed the rifles and we spent that day acclimatizing so set this up and so say before I left I'd spoke to friends of mine who had done this hunt before and they said to me you will get there you will be asleep at night or you'll lie there at night and you will go and I'm going to say excuse my French what the fuck am I doing here <laughs> why am I here and get me home yes that is exactly what was going through my head it was nuts and that was mainly at night because you lie there and you think you think of all the you think of how remote you are you can't communicate with anybody you don't know how everything is at home and for me who is sort of social media obsessed because it's part of my job and I'm quite social and and talkative it was it was sort of like you, you've you've stitched my mouth shut. You've cut my hand, hands and arms off, and I can't sort of communicate or do anything. And it was quite scary, absolutely. You know, in the first couple of nights there, and you're trying to you're there to acclimatize. So obviously, your breath is a bit you're a bit short breath anyway. 
But during the day, it's amazing because you're there, you see this incredible scenery, which in initial in initial look, it looked, just looks barren and mountainous. But actually, when you look at it more, it's 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 stunning. The topography, the rivers, and understanding what everything is and, and where it, where everything is and what animals are, you see. So after sort of the day of acclimatization and getting used to everybody, they went us out, they took us out on the horses for the first time to get familiar with everything. And at that point, you settled in, everything's happy. And I thought, right, let's go for it. Following day, we went out, we all packed up and we went on our first actual hunt. So you don't hunt technically until sort of day three. We set out hunting um and we then got on the horses packed our bags and at a fly camp overnight so we, we took tents and everything and the and there was five of us went out so the three guides well two guides the official and um dimitri and i it was in four hours on horseback <laughs> across some of the well i, I haven't ridden a horse in years and I was actually quite comfortable because of the joggers and everything like that. But I hadn't ridden in years. And all of a sudden, I'm going down drops that were just ridiculous. Um, with There was at one point, and I've got a video of it somewhere, of what was best part of a 150, 200-foot sheer drop. And the track was about 12 inches wide. Oh. It was petrifying. And I'm film, but I'm still managing to film it because all it in just, your decathlon you know, joggers, yeah, yeah, all in the decathlon joggers, and um, we're going through there. But at the same time, you're seeing eagles everywhere. You're seeing all manner of sort of vultures and other other birds of prey and things like that. You're seeing ibex right up on cliffs, and they're climbing on things that are sort of sheer walls. But they've obviously, you know, they can just climb up these, you know, sort of impossible sort of uh, rock face, and there's ibex everywhere but they spot you a mile off and they're off and and it's just a case of spotting and stopping and looking at the right spaces you know you're coming in through areas of covered in snow and you realize as you look over to your either your left or your right alongside the horse hoof prints you've got wolf prints and snow leopard prints and you just think this is just absolutely incredible it's amazing and we didn't get to see any of them but just the fact that you've seen the footprints you know they're there it was it was it was awesome you know we'd spend that whole day hunting and glassing the different valley you know valleys and different tops and going the horses were just incredible and you'd go up one hill come down and go up and i think at one point we're nearly sort of four thousand meters up we had lunch about three thousand eight hundred meters which was just amazing and we ended up eating um some marco polo which is like a wild sheep uh that was shot a couple of weeks before and they butchered it up and they cooked, cooked lunch there on the hilltop for us, more tea. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, and at that point, at that height, it was crystal clear. So it became quite warm. So you then having to take your layers off because obviously you start to sweat. And then if you, when you're not doing anything, it freezes. Oh, you run the risk of it freezing. And that was sort of the day three on the afternoon and was for me the most petrifying days because actually what happened was we went up where we glassed um some ibex on the hill about two hours before and we saw them uh there must have been about 150 200 in this group so we they wanted us to come right the way around so it took about two hours to get around the back of them so the plan was to shoot over the hill that as in often the case they'd moved on and he says well beck who was our lead guide said 
right, Nath, you're going to go down with Bismar, uh, who is the other guide, and shoot it around this corner. So jump off the horse, load up, take your gun, and <laughs> we'll meet you later on. We'll take the horse. And I'm, and I'm not clicked, I'm not registered at this point what is <laughs> going to happen. They go off on their horses, uh, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go around this corner, and there's a group there, and I'll shoot my Ibex. Four hours later, I am still shimmying down this mountain by hand. You had to be there to see it, but I nearly fell a number of times. There was about there was one part, and 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 word of advice to anybody doing this who's never done it before: make sure you have a sling with your rifle. I didn't, so it was being carried by hand all the way down. Oh my goodness! And I'm lowering myself down. Um, you're on razor sharp rocks because it's sort of been a road over the years by wind and and sort of little bits of sand or, or dust. It, it was crazy. The leather gloves that I had on were just cut to ribbons, and it took me about four. It took us about four hours to get down because whilst we started halfway up the mountain, the other guys on the horses were going right the way around. It took them nearly three hours, four hours to get there to meet us, and we're lowering ourselves down, glassing. Now, my guide is in fits of laughter watching this hopelessly useless gang- gangly Englishman trying to shimmy down what he sort of hop, skipped and jumped down. And he's there smoking his camel cigarettes <laughs> and just laughing at me. And I'm genuinely petrified. And he, he just runs across this, at one point, he runs across this shale slope and it's all loose shale. And the drop is, a, it, it was a good 300 feet from the top to the bottom. And I ran and it started to give way because I was much heavier than he was. And he's just laughing as I'm falling down this thing. And I'm thinking, you're finding this hilarious. I'm really not. And I'm about to die. And I'm nearly crying at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not afraid to say it. And I end up throwing myself at him and he grabs my hand and pulls me up. And then you sort of gather your thoughts for a few moments, you know, have a bit of a breather. And then you look back at where you've just climbed and you go, holy shit. That's that's not fun. But then you didn't have to go back. The, you, I no, mean, you, thank, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking we, you still had to come down and then up and down because you're navigating some of these drops that you can't even even go through. And there's all these sort of prickly like thorns that are sort of grown like weeds. And I'm thinking if we go back, I ain't going back. I that, that That's not happening <laughs> for sure. And then we get to this ledge and we see these ibex in the distance. And he says, can you take a shot? And arranged it, and it's only 600 metres, so I went, not a chance, not a chance. I ain't coming all this way to take a shot at something that I'm not, I've not shot anywhere near that distance, and, and, to, and to fuck it up. And he was absolutely perfect, he was no problem at all, but for them to think, I must have given off a vibe that I really knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was good, it was good to be there for about an hour, just watching these Ibex, hoping that they may come closer or, or, or come down or we can position ourselves. Needless to say, that was sort of the first day hunting. We still had to get best part of 150 foot down further. And at this point, the the, the rest of the guys had met us at or had already sort of got to the bottom of the mountain and started setting up camp for the night, which was a bit more reassuring to, to know that they were there, we could see them. But it was still, uh, you know, tricky on the old legs to get back down this, because the further down you get, the more loose the ground gets, something like that. So we got to camp that night, 
we had lunch there and we had a real, real laugh. And it was in this beautiful valley and, and it, it got dark quite quickly. And we've had dinner and we're sort of having a bit of a chat and plan of action for the following morning, knowing that the Ibex go from what, what they told us, they go up to the top at night and then they come down into the valley to feed the following day. So it was planned for an early start. So at this point, we've got our little tent. <laughs> Dimitri and I are um, trying to squeeze ourselves into this, what should have been a one-person tent at least, <laughs> and, you, you know, or, or half a person if that. And we're trying to squeeze ourselves into there. And I think I fell asleep in between two rocks or say fell asleep. It was on hard ground. It was it, it was just a nightmare. But I was warm at night again because the kit was fantastic. I wasn't, I wasn't, don't get me wrong, I wasn't toasty, but I was sufficiently comfortable that I could get some sleep. And you knew it was bad because even in the tent, the bottle, the, you know, the following morning, the, the water had all frozen. And we think, we think we got to about minus 50, minus 20. We had to bring... Um, a different type of sleeping bag, sort of minus 30 plus sort of condition uh, sleeping bag and kit there and, and ground mats. And I think that that's obviously helped hugely. If we'd have gone for a cheap sleeping tent, it wouldn't have been, it'd have been quite dangerous potentially. So we got about an hour's sleep between us <laughs> that night and the rest of the time, either Dimitri was snoring or I was. <laughs> um, <laughs> so waking each other up. We got up about five in the morning which was about the cracker, you know, the cracker door. And from there, that I could hear them all chatting. Dimitri had got up and dressed outside. I was just like, can I have a lie in? <laughs> and they tell me, the, 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 the chatting away, and I'm talk, hearing them talking about Ibex and things. And at this point, they're saying, right, we're going to go. There's an Ibex, or there's a couple of Ibex up there. So I'm packing my kit and bursting for the loo. <laughs> and so... I uh, quickly sort everything out and they're like, no, no, bring your gun, we'll go in. So we end up stalking up this riverbank for about 200 yards. For, yeah, for about 200 yards, two, two, about 200 metres up past, past the, the, the camp. And we pop up and where we pop up, it was as if it was sort of all staged. It definitely wasn't, but there's was a perfect sort of resting spot for me to sort of collect everything, you know, collect all my thoughts together, get everything ready and, and, and glass this Ibex, which had come down. I'm thinking, right, okay, perfect. So we ranged it in, 250 metres, we're watching, first shot, and drops, drops on the spot. And I'm thinking, happy days, you know, after yesterday's debacle of the most horrendous conditions I've ever experienced, it, you know, I was sort of rewarded with my eyebags. Well, they're all cheering and chanting, and next minute, this thing gets back up, and I'm and I've never, I've never experienced something get up again after it's been shot. And it transpired. It was 250 meters. It transpired. It was well. It was about, it was 200 meters when I shot it first, and the shot had gone slightly high from what I've what we'd calculated on the when we'd been practicing. And it had just must have just nicked the top, and it got up and started walking on. So it was a very much a case of quick second shot at 200 or 250 meters. And thankfully we dropped him this time. But at that point, you sort of keep an eye on it, let everything settle down around you and then make a plan to go up and get it. And at that point you realize, even with the binoculars, you can't see these things once it's, once it's down. The camouflage in them is amazing. 
and you realize then how well adapted they are to that that sort of environment anyway we get up there and it's difficult even though it's 250 meters which over here is nothing the the strain on you for walking up somewhere like that because of the altitude is is bizarre so it took us sort of half an hour it took me half an hour to get there (laughs) you could see the animal then and they're they're just absolutely spectacular they're more dense than a than a red a big red stag i mean it was huge even though it it was a short stumpy thing but it was very very dense what ammunition did you use i had the let me think it was the i had some gecko 165 grain ammunition which we tried out i was going to take up i have been trying out the um how do some people write it different cell and belly um lead free and that 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 was doing really well that that done really well but it didn't i didn't need to to take lead free and people have said look if you if you can use lead use lead because obviously it expands better and and again i'm i'm in no authority and i'm in no position to advise anybody on ammunition i'm actually the one that takes advice off people who 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 know far more than me but i found that the gecko stuff was really good i'm going to use this i'm going to use the cell and cell um stuff that i've got over here because obviously it's non-toxic and the, the whole non-toxic thing's been discussed now but the gecko stuff was 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 fantastic it did the job it it didn't it didn't go straight through, but it expanded for, fully. Um, we later found the found the bullet. Actually, I've got it here. Uh, the, um, I've got the expanded ammo here that we pulled out. We then dragged it, and I wanted to do everything physically possible. I didn't want to leave it to somebody else to do. I'm not in that. I'm not. I wasn't interested in that. And again, that's a part of the reason why I'm doing these trips is because I actually want to do, I, I, I want to throw myself in and get more, st- get stuck in and learn from people who've done it a lot more, a lot more than me, but I want to still participate. And I'm not there to just pull the trigger and go because it's, that's the tiniest fraction of the whole trip. So Dimitri and I then drag this Ibex off the hill back to base camp hand the guides our cameras to make it look like we were doing all the work and they're filming <laughs> us and they were just brilliant the guys there were mega you know they you know they, they loved getting in on the on the photos and and showing us and chatting with us and you know we're learning we, we you know we were getting them to teach us um some kyrgyz and russian and chit chat with them like that and, and they're shouting things at us and having, having a laugh as we're dragging this what essentially was probably about 100 kilos it was it was it was heavy down to down to base camp and we got there had some breakfast and then the guys go to work skinning and preparing it and i wanted to film at this point i helped them but i wanted to film and and document everything and what what was most endearing to me was knowing that everything on that animal was going to be taken. You know, yes, I've got the cape coming back as a, as a sort of memento of what the trip was, something I can look back in years' time. On. But seeing them to butcher an animal in a way that is not conventional to how I've seen it done over here, they don't they don't value prime cuts like the fillets or or anything like that everything's eaten but they, they they cut it in a very different way because it's food they're not there to present it nicely on a on a plate it eats well happy days how do they so preserve it from there the cold the, the shit the, the cold temperatures it's probably it was colder than most people's well, colder than the fridge so it gets what happens is is they break the animal up 
put it in bin bags and then it goes into these satchels on the side of the horses and and it's just there for the next day or two because the temperature temperatures aren't going to exceed anything above zero so you're absolutely fine and it was nice to see that everything was everything was taken i mean obviously the they don't take all the uh, the internals. They take the um, the heart and the the liver and the kidneys, but which is like the same over here. But it was just nice that nothing's wasted and everything is going to go to use somehow. So then they mounted. Oh, you know, we'd done that. We'd been done. We were done then by nine o'clock in the morning, and we were off then to go and get Dimitri's. And you just sort of feel like in some sort of western, you know, coming down like a cowboy coming down off these hills. You know, you've got a an ibex on on the on the, on the back of the horse, and you sort of got everyone's carrying guns. It was ace. I just I loved it, and you could film, and the weather was was spectacular, and I could get the drone out and have some you know some nice sort of aerial footage there. And it was just a really pleasant, easy morning after the after the previous day. And at that point, we're then heading back towards camp, ready to go and get Dimitri's. Did you feel like you did um, enough? physical training you mentioned earlier that you did swimming in preparation do you wish you'd done a bit more with hindsight always do more oh yeah always always do more I felt more than comfortable I think being honest adrenaline and excitement got me got me through it and by, by the time I got back to camp and at night I was absolutely you know goosed you know I'm going to go back would I do more for them 100% but because you're on a horse you don't feel necessarily the strain of the thin air because the horse is doing most of the work. So to say you have to be super, super fit to do it would be, a you know, sort of not necessarily an untruth, but, you know, not necessarily essential. But you don't go somewhere like that intentionally unfit, let's just put it that way, because of the risks, because you are so remote. I mean, I'm thinking we, we, we came down from sort of 4,000 metres when Dimitri went and got his, we were, Cabal, the uh, government official and I, stayed at the top, <laughs> sort of just thinking that there were going to be a, an hour. Well, they were there for nearly three hours, four hours, and we were on the very top of these peaks in Baltic conditions, waiting. At this point, you can't go down on a horse because it's too steep, so we had to walk the horses down. And that was just horrendously scary because you've got five horses all in sort of tandem on uh, on a sort of lead rope. It, it gets to a point where he, he he's so funny because he obviously does it all the time. And he comes and grabs the one horse that I was supposed to be leading and grabs it and takes it from me and goes, I'll do it. You, you know, you know, Englishman, you walk down, you know, you, you don't know what you're doing. And it was it was very true. I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm so glad he did. But walking down there, that took everything takes hours. And by this time, it was getting at six o'clock at night. Dimitri had shot his. We were then in pitch black as we were going back. And we had nothing but an iPhone torch to get us from these from this mountain top, well, from this mountain along the riverbed. And you're thinking, I, I hope to God this horse has had its carrots and can see in the dark because I can't see, I can't see shit. <laughs> How are the guides navigating? Is it just they've tread, trodden that path so frequently? know it i'm assuming that that's what it that's what it is they just know what they're doing that yeah i ended up when we got we dumped a load of our kit like tents and everything by the river with the intention of coming back if we didn't get dimitri's ibex so by the time we got back it was pitch black anyway and we'd done this i mean i was i was literally shaking with fear 
at some of the stuff that we did on horseback. And part of the ride where I said it was about 150, 200 foot drop, we did that in pitch black. So it, it was nuts. And we got to the river, uh, river and I'd had my head torch there from the night before. So I give it to the lead guide and we had a bit more light than an iPhone torch. But when you get on that home straight after four hours in pitch black coming back to base camp, because we thought, bugger it, we'll just go straight back to base camp that night. And you've got four hours of that and you get on the home straight where it's flat ground or, or flatter ground. And you can see the base camp sort of uh, floodlight in the distance, but doesn't seem to be getting any closer. You, but you know you're heading in the right direction. That's that's a, a huge sigh of relief. And needless to say, I think we got back about 10 o'clock that night, had a bite to eat and then went straight to bed, ready for the next morning of just sort of decompressing, getting everything sorted, because we both got our Ibex at this point. That was the that was the point I could I could manage to call home because I really wanted to call home and check in on everybody. And we had a sat a sat phone. We didn't take a sat phone with us into the hills. And I was thinking, I'm panicking, like cautious Carol here. That's what I was. And I'm thinking, if somebody falls off, I haven't got a sat phone. So next time I'm buying my own sat phone. <laughs> but managed to sort of get gather our thoughts. And it was at that point I'm thinking, I've got, we're, we're day five in at this point. And I'm laying there thinking, I really need to get home now. I loved it, but I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm a bit disorientated. I haven't had a proper shower. I haven't had a shower in four, in four days because there wasn't where you could just sort of splash water on your face and again, good old wet wipes. But it was, you start to sort of, your mind or my mind started to play tricks on me a little bit and you start panicking and stressing and you try and distract yourself. And that's why it was good in the day. But then I started to realise why friends said to me, you will lie there now and you'll think, why the fuck am I here? And I did it in a tent the night before, where, you know, the game in the middle of nowhere. And it's strange because you realise you're so far away from everywhere and so remote and so out of contact with anybody. But when you're having dinner in the pitch black at sort of eight, nine o'clock at night in the, in the middle of these valleys and you look up and you see a plane going over 30 odd thousand feet up, but you think it's really, really strange, bizarre. Anyway, morning comes, we had uh, had a bit of time to ourselves and we had a celebratory dinner that night, which was just so special because the guides brought the guitar out and started singing some of their sort of traditional songs and having a real laugh. Copious amounts of vodka was drunk that night. <laughs> and I mean, copious amounts. Um, I think we ended up doing certainly four litres. Oh my goodness. Between sort of, uh, well, there wasn't that many. I'm not going to say how many. There wasn't that many. Put it that way. I don't remember going to bed, and I think the the discussion was was sort of hinted at in a drunken state. Should we go wolf hunting that night <laughs> on horses? Thankfully, none of us were in a fit state to go wolf hunting, <laughs> and it was just amazing. We had a, the lady who did all the cooking for us came and had dinner with us. The guide. Uh, all the three guides did and we were winding each other up and because at this point we'd become friends we shared experiences with one another we were having you know having such a laugh out hunting and winding each other up and sort of reminiscing on some of the things that ha- happened just a couple of you know over the last couple of days it was just so special and i've and thankfully despite how drunk i was i managed to get loads of videos and photos of us all together ready for printing out into my scrapbook and i've started scrapbooking now 
like like some sort of uh, <laughs> sort of crazy crazy spinster that's just sat there <laughs> scrapbooking. I love it, and that was that was particularly special. And we actually ate some of the ibex that we'd shot. Dimitri what does it thought, taste like? Dimitri thought it was rancid. I loved it. It was just what incredible. Did you it to it was like very very strong lamb really strong lamb and how she cooked it it was quite it, it had quite tough it was quite tough but it, i thought it was absolutely delicious and we had it with sort of i think we had it with sort of like a stewy type in a stewy type thing maybe with some rice can't remember can't remember and some sort of um peppers and baked you know baked peppers and things like that and i thought it was absolutely delicious whether or not that was because i was absolutely ravenous <laughs> or um I genuinely thought it was nice, but I'd eat it again. And the Marco Polo was really nice. That was again another another sheep. So yeah, that was great. The next morning, woke up still very drunk, to sort of a rap on the door from our main guide, who walked in with another bottle of Russian standard vodka at nine o'clock in the morning. I've always maintained that if somebody asks you for a drink, you don't say no. It's bad manners. So I'm out at this point. Dimitri can't even look at the bottle and. I go out, I, I get get changed, get dressed, and I go and sit outside of them, nine o'clock in the morning, we're doing a bottle of um, vodka. And I think we polished that bottle off just after breakfast. Oh, my goodness. We weren't hunting or anything else at that point. Everything was no. packed, away, packed away and ready to go. Um, I got them all to do, because I, I smoke cigars. I think a lot of people know me for, for cigar smoking. I got them all on the cigars with me, which was, you know, it's become a sort of funny thing. Every, tra- every time I do a trip, I get cigars out and they've got to have a cigar with me or at least pose with one, even if they don't smoke. So we've got, a, I've got a lovely photo of that. Yeah. It was, it was then starting to to pack up then sort of day six, day seven. Yeah. But day, but day six, we'd gone back to, you know, started the 10, 10 hour drive back to Bishkek because we needed at this point, a few days back in the city to deal with the skins that we were going to take back or how to manage them, have them done, have the veterinary paperwork done with them. And our guide needed to have all the expert permits and everything done for that as well. So at that point, we'd gone back to Bishkek and she got us into a, a lovely hotel to have dressing gowns on the wall with slippers and <laughs> a nice hot shower and a pool and a, a restaurant was just the, the bit of luxury that we needed after... I wouldn't say slumming it because we saw one of the other agents camps as we were coming back and we were like, thank God we had an indoor toilet. Thank God we had a log cabin and X, Y, Z, because there was just a hole in the ground for the toilet again and um, an old container converted into bedrooms. So it's like, yeah, we picked the right one. How do you know, though? I mean, when you look at all the marketing materials for these outfitters, how did you choose the one you chose and not make the mistake that probably lots of people do and just pick well I think I think think the the saving grace was having somebody like Dimitri there because whilst me being me I think oh yeah I don't want to sort of impose and don't want to ask too many questions and being too overly polite he's a bit more blunt than I am and he's going right uh we want pictures of this 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 and this you know where, where do we do this and asking questions that he knows to ask from his previous experience and I think it's always good if you're never gonna if you've never been abroad go with somebody either preferably I would go with somebody who who hunts abroad a bit or has hunted abroad before 
and then they've got an idea on what to expect and they can sort of handhold you because I, I needed my handholding a lot of that time in the run-up to that trip and going there was um you know was was the first step to do you know to, to sort of being now able to advise people and help people there was you know was important so go with somebody ideally if you can go with somebody who has hunted abroad before if you can or really really do your research and ask questions and actually what we ended up doing was asking the agent for contact details of customers that had been with them before and phoning the phoning them up or messaging them and asking them and then everyone that we asked who had been with our agent was more than happy to answer questions and, and and give us advice because at the end of the day a lot of these trips regardless how much money they cost for people they're an expense but more than that you're in a a foreign country you don't know the customs and the cultures and it's always nice to go go prepared you're going to learn things on the way and make mistakes and things like that but what's what do they say pre prepared is pre-warned or, or something like that anyway yeah yeah, yeah. I know, I go prepared like preparation prevents piss poor performance or something. yeah prior preparation <laughs> prevents piss poor performance there you go the, the perfect one so that's what that's what it was and yeah a few days in the hotel and then the sort of final stint the only hurdle that I came across I took the new the new Merkel out which I loved just for the record best bit of kit I've got Sally Sauer who I which is my other rifle but she's not been out of the she's not been out of the cabinet since I've had this new Merkel and I absolutely why did you like Angela so much I just think everybody said to me because prior to that everybody was saying to me that you should have a synthetic stock because of the places that I'm going it's going to get bashed and the sour has got beautiful wood it's it's had a London finish on it I've done way too much with it that I you know to make it look special and actually you're frightened of damaging it and the and the Merkel is a real workhorse it's beautiful so so cool and so easy to shoot and the speed of it is phenomenal so I like that uh, especially in my instance here where I needed to get a second, you know, I wanted to get a quick second shot off. It was awesome for that. But with regards to the synthetic stock, it was fantastic. I just I just genuinely loved it. And actually I find myself, it's just, a, it's, the action is just cool. And I just like, I just like taking it out and shooting that a lot more now. So yeah, with, so going back from uh, the hotel and to, through to the airport, I had everything prepared, all my paperwork. And I knew my paperwork was meticulous because I checked it twice and the agent had checked it. And there was no issue with it coming in. When I was leaving, and this is something that people should be wary of, I got stopped at the border uh, at the customs and they said, you've not got the paperwork for your rifle to go back. And I said, yeah, I have. There's the paperwork. I've paid for it. Hit this and the other. And at this point, he started showing me a screen. This was the airline showing me a screen, which made no sense to me whatsoever. And this is why I think it's also really important that you go with a good agent and somebody that will support you and be able to translate and represent you and fight your corner. So I showed the paperwork and they said, no, no, you've not paid it. And at this point, I I, I didn't feel in a position or comfortable enough to argue. I just I said, pay however much it is, it's $140. However much it is, there's my card, take it off. And he goes, no, no, we want cash. <laughs> I, was like, I bet you I, I bet you do I bet you yeah. do and I'm in no position at this point to argue so I go and get cash out it actually ends up swallowing my card so I get to have, I had to order a new card yeah. and I pay this guy cash but I get him to to do me a receipt and that was the first and only hurdle that we had to deal with it wasn't it was it was just somebody who worked for the airline who saw me coming and tried tried to look with it 
I gave in because I wasn't, I just wanted to get home. And at this point, I just got on the plane and went. I actually raised a complaint with the airline, had proof. They had no record of the payment whatsoever when I got back. But thankfully, I had proof. And a long story short, they ended up paying me, paying me, refunding me the money because I could prove that it was. So that was the only only issue. But the agent was translating and explaining things for me. And she was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, go with an agent. What was the name of the agent that you went with? She's called uh, Anastasia. She's actually... I'll, I'll, what, we, what we can do is we can put the details in at a later day because she's m- moving from um, one, a- one area to another. So she's sending me all her new, new paperwork over soon. Absolutely fantastic. So lovely. So much fun. So organised with the paperwork. And I've already I've been on the phone to her today, actually, to organise another trip back to Kyrgyzstan next year. And I think we're going to do Kazakhstan with her as well in 2024. Oh, amazing. And what, what are you going to be after? We're in talks about going doing what they call um, morale, which are like basically for, uh, they're like a giant red deer. And I mean, they're giant. But again, <laughs> I'm more interested in going going to this place because of the scenery and, and the actual hunt, not necessarily pulling the trigger, because it's such a small part of the whole trip. And I just want to hunt in as many different countries and meet as many different people as possible because I've learned so much from them like the guides their experience their knowledge the places and the things that they've seen and they were showing you things on them on their mobiles like walking around the corner of a cliff and three snow leopards go up David Attenborough hasn't even got that footage (laughs) whilst I lay there at night on many occasion on the over that of that of the 10 days I was there going why the hell am I here Every morning I'd wake up to the most beautiful views. I spent it with one of my closest friends who has become even closer whilst we're hunting. You know, from you spend 10 days with somebody in the same room, you <laughs> you get from put music on while I go to the toilet to oh, I'm just going to the toilet. <laughs> you just you <laughs> all all your you know, you shed all your inhibitions, you just go, oh, do you know what? to meeting some amazing people and understanding different communities, people who live in the middle of nowhere. And you just think, they, you see, they're so happy there. And yet I'm poles apart in my world. And yet if I took them out in Manchester, they'd be so, they'd be the same as me. <laughs> what the <laughs> hell am I doing here? <laughs> so it was, it was an incredible experience, a, a true emotional roller coaster. A few bruised egos from coming up and down mountains on cliffs and sharp rocks. A couple of sore heads. And four litres of vodka. And four litres of vodka. But, you know, that was, that was, that was between probably, probably eight of us. I'm, that might be an exaggeration on eight. It might have been six. <laughs> but, um, you know, just, amazing experience like that for a first first time hunting aboard where i traveled with I've traveled with guns um and where english isn't people's first language or remotely there you know a language that they're, they're particularly used to but yet you stumble across and actually you learn from these people you can communicate through gestures with hunting that, that, are, that are sort of universal and it's amazing really how many you know terms or gestures become synonymous with hunting and things like that so yeah amazing absolutely amazing a phenomenal experience and for anyone listening how much um as a kind of ballpark figure how much do people need to set aside for say a 10-day excursion to Kyrgyzstan would you say I would say something for 10 days in Kyrgyzstan I would sort of be looking at around you'd be looking about 
seven and a half, maybe 8,000. And that I, you could probably genuinely get your flights in with that as well. Now it's a big, big chunk of money, and it you know it's a you know a year or two's worth of saving, you know, in my instance in the, for, for this for this hunt. But I look at it now and I go, well, I've had ten days in a country that is off so many people's radio, radars. Nobody, not many people knew it existed. I've spent it with great company, eating some really interesting, great food, seeing some bizarre sights from. Cows, you know, queuing queuing in traffic with cows, <laughs> and dogs running down the street with uh, with, with uh, KFC buckets in the city centre, to very interesting toilet toilets in the service station, to stunning scenery, incredible animals, amazing people with real knowledge and um, passion for what they do, and memories made for life. And you think, yeah, it's seven and a half grand, eight grand, whatever it is. And yet I compare that having shot a lot of pheasant shooting and done a lot of pheasant shooting in the UK, and I love it still, but it becomes too too much of a muchness for me. You know, you do the same thing and you say, you know, if you shoot the same shoot, for me, that's not what it is about anymore. I go to, I go pheasant shooting to see friends or work the dog. I go hunting for memories and experience, or experiences rather, and actually to gain experience because I'm still relatively new to it. I just want to want to want to gain my experience through slightly less conventional ways than others. It just it sounds like you had an absolutely phenomenal adventure and I would love to talk to you about your next one in the next episode and can you give me an idea of what we will be talking about in the next instalment? The next instalment will be my second trip this will be my second trip but we can also talk about the first tri- the first time to Norway where I spent it with two guys who have become very good friends of mine hunting moose drinking more local home brews I think that's going to be a, that's going to be a thread try, uh, through this through this podcast home brews and hunting but that's perfect <laughs> that, yeah that, there's the tagline so yeah we've done vodka in Kyrgyzstan next time it will be moose and Korsk I think it, I think it was pronounced which I learned this time round. And I think that was strong coffee with 86%. It was 86% this one was. And they said that's still not strong enough. You could set it on fire. So, yeah, we'll be talking about moose hunting in sort of mid-north Norway. And we'll talk about the two trips that I've done there so far. One successful, one unsuccessful in the in the sense of I didn't we didn't shoot a moose, but still successful in that you're out with great people seeing things that most other people haven't had the fortune yet to do yeah so we'll talk about we'll talk about uh, norway uh, norwegian moose awesome i can't wait well thank you very very much much. and um i will speak to you again very soon thanks very much thank you for listening and if you like this episode don't forget to subscribe on podbean for more and visit vikingshoot.com for more details about Viking arms, Merkel rifles and Leopold optics.